Thank you so much, Sharon, for being willing to help us out this morning. Thank you very much. Before I pray, there's uh, just a couple of folks that are here that I wanted to recognize if I could. I, I uh, met this the Kirk family, Jeff and Chris, uh, I guess about 1996. Um, our families, I don't know where they are. I can't see. There they are. There they are. Um, so we, I guess we've known each other for over 20 years, but uh, they're visiting from Ohio this morning. I think they're camping somewhere near here, and they were kind enough to let me be their pastor for a while, so I'm, I'm glad, so glad that they're here. Thanks for coming, Jeff and Chris and the family. Thank you, and I, I think somewhere my brother is here, my brother and his fiance, but I can't see them either, but I think, I think they're, there they are. All right, sorry. <laughs> but thanks so much for coming, Alex and Caitlin. It's great to have you here as well. Uh, let's let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for the time that you've given us. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for its perfection, its clarity, its specificity, Father, its its perfection. Just I thank you so much for it, for its authority over us because it's you speaking to us. And so, Father, I pray that because of that you would enable me to speak this morning. Lord, I pray that every person in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, would not only be enabled by your Spirit to hear and to comprehend, but to submit to what we see you saying to us because of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that um, you would have your way and that you would be honored and that your Son would come front and center. And this I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, communicating well, as we all know, is not very easy. Sometimes it takes a lot of thought to make sure you don't convey something you don't want to or or, uh, miscommunicating what you did want to. That's especially true, or one of the areas where that's especially true is when you talk about writing and commas, comma use and how you're communicating. If you misplace a comma... Even in how you say something or read something could be horribly misunderstood. Maybe you've seen it before in pictures, but there's a big difference in comma use between saying, let's eat, Grandpa, and let's eat, Grandpa, right? <laughs> it's very different, different things. Man, bacon is really good. Man, bacon is really good is disgusting, right? You, you, you don't want to make those mistakes, but... The Bible speaks of the necessity of clarity. It speaks about it very clearly. And it speaks about clarity in communication specifically as something that is in line with the content and the message of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul exhorted the Colossian believers in this letter we've been going through together regarding the character with which they were called to proclaim their Savior. This mattered. It was important. And we are in need of our Lord, the Bible says, to proclaim Christ as we ought to, with clarity, wisdom, urgency, grace, flavor, and distinction. So let's look at this text. We're going to look at a small portion of chapter 4, and the next week we'll end, God willing, we'll be ending Colossians But let's look at just this little section here in verses 2 through 6. I'm going to start by reading verses 2 through 4 of Colossians chapter 4. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So Paul's closing exhortations begin to narrow the focus for Christian living onto two things, prayer and evangelism, proclaiming Christ. And not as two separate things per se, but as one thing being dependent on another. But what we really need to take hold of as we look at the text before we gloss over it because it's the end, is that these instructions are bathed in dependency. Independency. Paul is writing here as though their obedience to these commands, as well as the personal direction of his own life, requires something outside of them coming into them 
in order to ever happen. Paul does not assume anything in his life except that he needs grace and that grace will be there for him. And here he is trying to pass that idea on to the Colossian believers. That's what's really driving this text, Paul's dependency on grace, which is implicitly and then explicitly instructing us. What God has given to us in the gospel was not meant to be embraced and settled at the beginning, and then we just take off into life with this great information that just sits in our rearview mirror. Paul teaches us again and again that the gospel is not just the means by which we enter fellowship with God, The gospel is what keeps us in fellowship with God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's active in us. It's always working to keep us, sustaining us at all times in everything. So grace isn't just needed at the beginning. Grace continues to be needed in every moment. Paul has put all the eggs of his life into the basket of God's ever-present grace. That's the source, and it's it's... Helpful for us to look at it here to understand how Paul thought, how Paul approached everything. That's the source of that beautiful verse that's so familiar for us in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, beloved. That verse has a context. It isn't a general statement about Paul's new ability to do anything in his life now because of Jesus. If we think like that, we've robbed the verse of all its beauty because we think the Bible is ultimately a book about us. So that's how we read texts like that. That verse has become an anthem for the human spirit. Now that I have Jesus, I can do anything. There's even a sports uh, clothing line, I think that's called 413 or Philippians 413, so that when you work out, no matter what you're facing, you can remember, I can do this, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now that I have Jesus, I can bench 550 pounds. Not if you're so skinny you only have one stripe on your pajamas. You're not bench pressing 550 pounds. Right? That's not what that verse means. You know what you need to bench press 550 pounds? Muscles. And you can have those whether or not you know Jesus. Right? That's not the point of the text. There are people who hate Jesus that can throw 52-pound rocks over a 13-foot wall over and over again in competitions just for fun. Jesus did not come to help us achieve things that can just as readily be achieved without Him. Jesus is not a prop to the triumph of the human spirit. He is a Savior. And He came to rescue people from sin and from death and from slavery. Jesus, listen to the text, listen to Philippians. Let me read that verse in its context here. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This is Paul talking. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul is saying there, as it relates to our text in Colossians, is extremely important. He's saying, in essence, I have learned to suffer even to the point of starvation because I get my strength from Jesus and not food. His statement is about the God-given ability to be content no matter what through Christ who gives us the strength to be content. Contentment, when everything is crashing down around you, is what Christ provides for us by His grace, not muscles and talent or any number of other things. Tony Robbins and Oprah can help you realize those things. That's not what Jesus Christ came for. Philippians 4.13 is about the sufficiency of Jesus in all circumstances for us because He will never leave us and never forsake us. That's the basis all the time for Paul's exhortations to keep praying in the church. God's ever-present grace and power to care for us. So Colossians 4 is coming to us as a smite, if you will, on corny, human-centered Christianity. You, know, you, you see these kinds of statements all the time. Or you hear them. You know, that, uh, 
The devil whispered in my ear, you can't stand the storm. And I whispered back, I am the storm. I, what does that mean? I am the storm. Like Jesus walks on storms. Right? So, so while you're making that statement about how great you are, that I am the storm, Jesus is going to walk on your face when you say that. The, 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 the statements that, that we are so man-centered and human-centered, we are not the storm. We're, we're not that great. What, what, what does that even mean, I am the storm? The, the Lord gives His toughest battles to His strongest soldiers. No, He doesn't. The Bible does not say your strength is made perfect, in, 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 that His strength is made perfect in your strength. The Bible says His strength is made perfect in your weakness. We, we, we destroy one another through these things, right? God will never give you more than you can handle. Yes, He will. All the time. So that you throw yourself onto Him and don't keep looking in the mirror for your hope and for your strength. These are important things. This isn't just semantics. We, we don't want to be thinking like this. Our, this kind, that, that version of, of, of how to use Scripture as a, as a man-centered thing, it's, it's deadly because it takes our eyes off of Christ and puts our eyes on us, beloved. And in Colossians, we are told the precise opposite of this. To set our minds on Christ. To set our minds on things above. Not to determine in ourselves, for ourselves. The whole point of ending a letter like this pushing all the focus onto prayer is to remind you of your utter lack of sufficiency to accomplish what Christ has called us to. That's what Paul is doing in this letter. That's what Paul does in every letter. Christ is a great Savior. He's not a therapist. And if we continue to believe these things about ourselves and assume these things, they're just setting us up to crash when the bottom drops out. And the bottom will drop out one way or another. Paul talks like we are completely dependent at all times on God to show up. Here he tells them to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That adverb steadfastly lets us in on the fact that the what is not all that matters in the life of a believer. In fact, the what of a believer is irrelevant if the how of a believer is unclear Christian prayer is to be offered up in confidence that God is listening. It's to be offered up with care and deliberateness and offered up with thankful hearts. And all those things, again, are the effects, the implications of the gospel that Paul wants in our minds at all times. So we pray steadfastly with confidence because God has qualified us to enter His kingdom, remember? We pray as sons and daughters. We pray watchfully with care We pray deliberately because God is still at work in our world to save and rescue the lost. So we tune our prayers to be in accordance with what God is already doing. And according to Jesus, God is looking for laborers to send into His harvest because it's ripe. So prayer was not given to us as this self-centered thing so that God will somehow tend to our little area of needs. Prayer is for a sent people. It's for a people who have been sent. If you look at Paul's prayer in the New Testament, you'll, you'll learn very quickly that one of his utmost concerns every time he prays is the ongoing spread of the gospel. That entered into Paul's personal prayer. Prayer is a tool that's been given to a people sent on mission. And he says we pray with thankful hearts. Which means we're never meant to take the eyes of our heart off of what God has accomplished for us in Christ. The foundation of all prayer is the truth of the gospel. All the time. Remember chapter 2, verse 7. He said we are to be abounding in thanksgiving. Here, thanksgiving is the root of our prayers. So Paul instructs them to continue in prayer, to never stop praying, which is a call to never stop depending. Never stop needing Him. Don't miss the fact that after a list of instructions at the end of this letter is the admonition to continue in prayer. We live our lives in dependence. Not independently, but in dependence on Him. Beloved, none of us has any bootstraps to pull ourselves up by. No one in this house has pulled themselves up and made themselves good enough to be in the family. Christianity is not 
for the little engine that could. It's for the train wreck that can't. That's who it's for. That's why we continue in prayer. Prayer is the ultimate expression of dependence. And Paul begs for it all the time. And we, 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 beloved, we tend to just plan and work and plan and work and then ask God to show up and bless the offering we've brought. That's the DNA of Cain in the Garden of Eden. We don't, we, we don't want, we, we need to be dependent from the start to the finish. Paul is sitting in prison when he writes this. Don't forget that. He's probably in Rome in prison for proclaiming the gospel. And what does he ask for in verse 3? That God would open the doors for him that he might continue to proclaim the gospel. That he might continue to do what got him thrown in prison in the first place. Do you hear what's behind that when he prays that? If that's what he's praying, what is behind it? What is driving? What holds up a man like Paul? The steadfast hope that God will get him out of prison and continue to direct his steps to the nations. That if God does that, he's going to need God to do it. He's going to need God to open the door for him to do it. There's watchfulness in a prayer like that because Paul knows that he's been sent. There's even thanksgiving in a prayer like that because he knows he's in prison because Christ has saved him and taken control of his life. So he's banking on God doing things that go along with what God has called him to do and to be. There's an oughtness to Paul's life now in verse 4. Do you notice that? Which is how I ought to speak. With clarity. He prays in verse 4 to be able to declare the mystery of Christ. That is, the mystery of Christ is the message of how in Christ all of God's word will be fulfilled. Paul is praying, Paul is praying to declare that message with clarity. So Paul has an obligation. You see that word ought. Paul has an obligation not just to go to the nations and proclaim the mystery of Christ, the message of the gospel. Paul has an obligation to speak it clearly to people. And the great apostle Paul does not think he is able in his own strength and own wisdom to pull that off. So he asks for the prayer of the church to do this. Pray for me to be able to make the message I've been sent to proclaim clear. So speaking with clarity concerning Christ matters. And therefore, it requires God to act. Right? Because none of us has the ability to make it clear within ourselves. Not this message. No matter how personable we are or skilled in speaking we are or how good we are at arguing, Gospel clarity is a miracle that God must bring about. One we need to constantly pray for. Because as Paul is praying here, there's an oughtness to speaking clearly about Jesus. That's the source of his instructions for them beginning in verse 5. Paul assumes that they're engaged in the same task that he is. They are also charged with declaring the mystery of Christ. And it's not just the what for them either. It's also the how which is why we have in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. It's almost like, it's almost like Paul actually cares about outsiders and how they hear the message. Not, so Paul isn't just, Paul isn't self-consumed with worrying about what he's saying Paul is concerned about how the people to whom he's speaking hear what he's saying. Or if they can hear what he's saying. What he means by that term outsiders is people who have yet to be brought into the family. People that are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Living according to their old natures and what they tell themselves is true. People in this letter that are still enslaved to the elementary principles of the world and what works in the world. They're enslaved to those things. They believe those things. Church, this text means God cares not just that we speak to people about the gospel. God cares how we speak to people about the gospel. It's not just the content that God is concerned with. It's the clarity, the delivery the tone, and we need grace to do that, according to Paul. And beloved, oh, how we need grace to do that. We've been talking a lot on 
our Sunday night series through Jonah about these things. You know, that, that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. John 3.17, so why have we taken it on ourselves to be the spokesman of condemnation to the world? Why, why are we doing something Jesus did not do? Why have we in large part made it our job to call out the world for their sin? Right? Where, where, is, where is wisdom found according to Paul? Remember, what is wisdom according to Paul in this letter? He's already established that in chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So to walk in wisdom toward outsiders in context is to be consumed with the knowledge of Christ towards outsiders. Christ specifically, as He's been presented to us in Colossians, as a wonderful and sufficient Savior who is the source and substance of all truth, who loves sinners, who sets us free from the slavery of trying to make ourselves acceptable to God or to anybody else by our own goodness or our effort. The Christ who, though all things were created through Him and for Him, took on human flesh and came to save those who had rebelled against Him. This is the one of whom we speak and we're to speak of Him with clarity. We're the fragrance of Jesus, the Savior in the world. And just like Jesus wasn't, we aren't the world's sin police. That persona is not to walk in wisdom. So we need constantly shaped by the message that reveals Jesus, the gospel. Remember this, beloved. What we consider to be wisdom toward outsiders will be shaped by what our goal is for outsiders. We aren't trying to win people to a certain political view. We aren't trying to win people to our way of seeing economics or nationalism or education. We are trying to win people to Jesus Christ. That's different. Our mission is to make disciples. We aren't trying to convert people to us. We want them to be converted to Jesus. What is wise given the mission we are on? What is wise given the mission we are on? It's not to say that every other mission is invalid and worthless. That's not what we are saying. We are asking, Paul is begging the question, what is wise concerning outsiders? What would it look like to walk in wisdom towards outsiders? What would it mean for us if our charge is to declare that message with clarity? One thing it's going to mean is that we aren't going to muddy the water of it with any other message. It doesn't matter how good or valuable or even true that other message is. The gospel is a singular message apart from every other system of truth in the universe. The gospel stands alone, and it stands on its own. And not only does it not need propped up by anything else, it can't be propped up by anything else. The minute That's 1 Corinthians 1. The minute you touch the gospel with any other message of earthly human wisdom, you have diluted it to the point of obscurity. And Paul is saying, we cannot abide that. We cannot have it. We cannot. Give thought, beloved, we are called to give thought to what we say. To remember that the wisdom of men is foolishness with God across the board. In other words, it doesn't matter how much an argument makes sense for the good of of an economy or for the good of a government. That is not the conflict in which we are engaged. That's a separate discussion. Beloved, to walk in wisdom towards outsiders means we do not muddy the water for them. We we, we have to take stock and, and, and look here for a few minutes. The world may not be willing to listen to a group of people that are constantly nagging them about how wicked they are. You and I wouldn't want to listen to that either. That's just the way it is. 
we, we, we just, it's a tough subject. I get it. I fully accept that. But you, you can't, with the same, blessing and cursing cannot come from the same mouth and be clear at the same time. You can't be telling people how stupid they are while telling them how much they need what you have. It, like it, it, it doesn't compute. It doesn't compute. And you, you, we can't put all the blame on them. They just don't want to listen. Not to that, no. We might say, I understand that, Tony. But Tony, these things matter. I'm not saying other things don't matter. I'm not saying that. And neither is the Bible. But beloved, notice the words that the Holy Spirit of God has inspired. The word here is the best use of the time. Not good use of the time. Right? Not decent use of the time. Not even better use of the time. Best use of the time. And according to this book, just Colossians, what would be the best use of the time in this text? We aren't to be consumed by what is good, beloved. We're to be driven by what is best. Making the best use of the time. Best automatically puts good and better in their place. That's what the word best does. The best use of the time for us is to speak clearly and singularly about Jesus. That's why we're always in a state of Dependence, because that doesn't come naturally or intuitively to any of us. That's the reason Paul says you have to continue in prayer about these things. The natural bent of us is not to speak clearly about Jesus and only Jesus. We are not naturally wired to make the best use of the time. We're naturally wired to serve ourselves, to look over the person in front of us. Again, going back to a couple of weeks ago, that's why we don't really listen. We're just waiting to talk. We're forming our argument while someone else is talking. So this isn't, this is something that is a miracle what Paul is asking for here. He's not saying in the text this morning, now you all go and huddle and try to figure out how to best use the time. What does that mean? And then we drive ourselves crazy. Because then we start looking and measuring one another. Is that the best use of the time? We need a miracle to make the best use of the time. We need a miracle. Clarity is going to take a miracle in the world. That's how lost we are apart from Christ. It will take a supernatural act of God for the gospel just to be clear to somebody. We need to treat the gospel and our task as commissioned and sent into this world with that much seriousness, with that in mind. This is why we're in need of Him all the time. We, we need to pray for the wisdom to speak clearly and well. We need to pray for that. We're dependent on God for that. Clarity is the result of prayer. And, and Paul isn't really talking here about getting your subject-verb agreement right or coming up with the, um, the most effective program for this. That's not how Paul thinks. We do because we're doers. So we think if there's a problem, you implement a program and a, a plan of action and a point of attack. And, and, and Paul says, no, you get on your knees. He's talking about prioritizing above all other agendas in this world the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners. Jesus and the need for outsiders to hear of him with clarity determines what the best use of the time is. Clarity concerning Christ will always be the best use of our time. And even clarity requires a how. Look at verse 6. Just this verse is loaded. Let your speech always... If, Paul, if the Holy Spirit doesn't inspire that word, we can all walk out of here this morning not really caring whether or not we listen to the text. Because we can just subjectively decide when we're going to speak with grace. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer, how you ought to answer 
There it is again. We have an obligation to the people in the world. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Beloved, just consider the care here that Paul is taking to ensure that not just our content, not just our content, but our tone, our delivery, the how with which we speak, that those things honor God and show genuine love for outsiders. Each and every single one of them individually here. Not just this group of people who are lost. Individual people. Each person. Each one. Paul says we need to be concerned about much more than our theology. The answer is not being unconcerned about theology and accuracy. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, though, that we need to be much, we need to be concerned about much more than our theology because apparently, according to this text, the gospel is not delivered clearly when it's delivered by an unclear, unwise, unconcerned, ungracious, and presumptuous person. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to proclaiming Christ. There isn't. Do we realize that? In fact, Paul says that assuming how someone needs to hear the gospel is wrong. To just assume that, that no, to just go barreling in without any thought of who we're talking to. He wants us to be so filled with the knowledge of Christ, which is what he's been begging for this whole letter that we begin to realize how different people need to hear it for themselves. Do we realize that the Bible has actually called us to this? We focus on programs, though, don't we? We tend to focus on programs, not people. So our focus is on our approach, right? It's on ourselves. It's not on the people we're hoping to reach. That has to be reversed, beloved, if that's the case. What will bring them in the doors is, is, is often the question we're asking. I think Paul would say that's the wrong question. That assumes that people are nothing more than sheep that will respond to the right bells and whistles. But they're not. We're all sheep. But the goal is not to get people to respond to the right bells and whistles. Those people out there, right? Th- think about this for a minute. And I, I do this, I do this very thing. Okay? So I'm not soapboxing above any of you. But what have we done to each other in our culture? Everybody's in a category now. You know, you, you, you label somebody, that's what they are. And they carry all the baggage and weight and characteristics of whatever we think that group is. We don't even see individual people anymore. You know? So we, th- we talk, how are we going to reach this group? How are we going to reach that? And, and I suppose that there's a time and a place for that question. But, I, beloved, I don't know that we've been called to groups and to categories. It seems like we've been called to see the person in front of us. Each one of them. Right? I mean, that's... It, to the point, we're so kind of consumed with labels that we're uncomfortable now. What that does, I think, is it muddies the water of what the gospel came to do. So when you start to speak in categories, we get a little taken aback. Like maybe the gospel isn't for that group. Yeah, it is. It doesn't matter what the group is. We're black and white, liberal and conservative, gay and straight, right? The The... All those groups are sinning. All of them. We're not denying that for a second. But beloved, those are people. Those are people. And and, and when we think in categories, the easy we just start to loathe people because they're a part of that group. And look, I'm thankful. Jesus did not do that to me. Right? That's the hopeless one. Those are the hopeless. Those are the two indulged in their flesh. 
I'm not going over there. No. In the name of Christ, no. And if, if, if that type of language makes us uncomfortable, that the gospel's for them, if that makes us bristle, then we haven't come to terms with the scandal of our own salvation. And it probably would be best, according to Paul, for us to keep quiet about it until we get our stuff together. We don't need people out there muddying the water about what it means to be a believer. Right? What it means to be saved by grace through faith from our sins and the penalty of death and hopelessness. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is not another message. The gospel is not your sins. The gospel is not my sins. The gospel is not what group I fit into. Or what label has been placed upon me by whomever makes labels. The gospel is the proclamation of the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and intercession of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. That's the gospel. We don't want to become unclear, unwise, unconcerned, ungracious, and presumptuous about the unbelieving world. And Paul is telling us here that apparently people won't be able to listen to anything that comes from a people like that. Again, I say that the reason I'm, the reason it, I'm going to nuance that sentence like I keep doing here is because I don't, I'm not painting you with a brush this morning. Please, I'm not saying this is what you're doing. I, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to do that. My task is to preach the Word. And the Word seems to hit on certain subjects like they're relevant all the time. You know, it, it, it's, it's a hard... You know, you say, okay, what book am I going to study next? What book are we going to go into next? And Colossians is the one, and here it is. Like, like this is tailor-made for 2018 in America. It's tailor-made for it. And beloved, we're, we're obsessed with what's wrong with the world. And Revelation would say, the world is going to continue to do evil. You're, we're on a rescue mission, beloved. Right? This metaphor works. We're... We don't want to rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic. We want to save people from drowning. This is what Christ has called us to. It, it, that's the point of the beauty of the gospel. Yes, other things matter, but nothing matters more than this one message about Jesus. And we've got to be clear about that. We can't afford to let it get muddied by other messages, no matter how good and sensible they are. And that's not lip service. There are good and sensible truths out there that aren't gospel truth, but they're truth. But just this, how specific he is in this passage. What it is that he's calling us to in this passage. Consider not just the heart of Paul here that he would write this, but realize, beloved, the Holy Spirit of God is the one who inspired Paul to write this sentence. God cares. Think about what we're seeing here. Let's get behind it a little bit. God cares about the specific and unique needs of individual people. Right? I mean, obviously, the, the, the content of the message never changes, never alters. It cannot be compromised that much. But the presentation, apparently, may need to be tailored all the time to the moment and to the person in front of us. The text seems to be written more as though we'll all be out there with people, doesn't it? Paul seems to be assuming that we're going to be with people all the time. That we need to have something inside of us that is an answer for each and every person. So Paul's driving assumption is not necessarily that our goal is to invite people to an event where they will hear someone else tell them about Jesus which is fine, and there's a place for that. But primarily, what does Paul, Paul instructions assume here? What do they imply? 
that we are involved in a lot of conversations with a lot of different people all the time. And that's why we pray. We not only need grace for every moment for ourselves, but for our mission to others. To not be deliberate in this. To just sit back and lazily assume that, well, they aren't listening just because they don't want the truth. Well, I'm, of course they don't want the truth. That, that doesn't determine whether or not we're specific. We, we, that's an arrogance that not even the greatest evangelist in history had. Right? Let, let, let your speech always be gracious. Now, Moundsville Baptist Church, we believe in the inerrancy and the authority and the infallibility and the sufficiency of God's holy word. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Let your speech always be gracious. My speech hasn't always been gracious since like 7 a.m. Always be gracious, though, is what God's Word calls us to. You, Beloved, do we feel the weight of the law? Always be gracious. God, do you know who's out there? Do you know how the people out there talk to us? Do you know what they believe? Do you know what they say? Yeah, before they were born. Let your speech always be gracious. There is never a time when it is acceptable to speak to outsiders in an ungracious way. We're undone. We're undone. Our speech should always be seasoned with salt. God cares about details like that. Salt, savory speech that heightens the flavor of a moment with a person. So not the seemingly dull, maybe sanctimonious vocabulary that, that we could be used that nobody really understands, but thoughtful speech, thoughtful words, thoughtful content. Do we know what we need to do to be able to speak that way? We don't need to go back to school or seminary. That's not what Paul is after here. If this is going to happen, if verse 6 is going to happen, and it's going to happen for real, we need to get to know people and listen to them and care about them. That's really the only way you really know how to speak to somebody. Beloved, this does in no way, shape, or form set aside... God's call to the church to preach the word. And for moments like this where a large group is sitting and listening, this in no way demeans that, degrades it, sets it aside. That is not Paul's point here. Paul is not talking to pastors per se. He's talking to a church filled with believers. People are hurting. We see their sins. We don't see them all the time. We just see what they do. And sometimes we hate them because what they do uniquely threatens our agenda and hope in this world. People don't always know where to turn. They don't. They're trying to feel their way around to the truth according to Acts 17. According to that same text, we've been placed right here in this time, right here in Moundsville. Like, remember, Colossians was a, Colossae was a, it wasn't the New York or the Paris of ancient Asia Minor. It was, it was more like a Zanesville or a Newark or a Moundsville. It just, it was just a normal town. We've been placed right here so that as they grope here, see, God sees Moundsville. God loves Moundsville. And when they grope out there for the truth and for the light, that's why we're here. To grab their hands. To love them with the truth about Jesus Christ. We're not talking about denying the truth. We're talking about learning how to speak the truth into individual lives in a way that shows we know that person. Again, that's not how it's always going to be in the proclamation of the gospel. Right? And we don't need to become sociologists. and That's not what Paul is calling us to. What he's calling us to is the ability to know what somebody needs to hear in a given moment. That's all he's saying. 
It's just like what Jonah refused to see about Nineveh. If, if, if God was as disgusted as we are with unbelieving people, what in the world did He leave us here for? Why has He sent us? Why the warning if there's no concern? We need every day the gospel to be fresh in our own hearts, beloved. We all need it, and we all need it right now. God wants His church to not think like a giant force sent into the world to wrangle it back into submission to our God. We are not Muslims. We are not Muslims. We're not trying to take over the world. Right now, our king runs the world. We fear nothing. Nothing. He wants us to see ourselves individually as people who are part of a family where nobody got adopted because they deserved it. So that, verse 6, so that we know how to meet people face to face and speak the truth of the gospel to them where the love and grace of their Savior has been revealed. Beloved, we are in need of our Lord to proclaim Christ as we ought to. That is, with clarity, wisdom, urgency, grace, flavor, and distinction. So let me close like this. As we all consider these things, there's something that we cannot forget this morning. If if we don't go here now, then the message this morning is utterly hopeless and pointless, really. I'm asking you this morning to turn your eyes upon Jesus just for these last few minutes. Look full in His wonderful face. Beloved, Jesus Christ obeyed and lived out perfectly every one of these commands in the Bible. And He did it for us because we can't. Jesus Christ walked in wisdom towards outsiders. Nobody better. He knew what to say. He knew when to say it. He knew how to say it and to whom He should say it. Every word of Jesus, every word, and we don't even have all of them, that he spoke in his life. Every word of Jesus was spoken in divine wisdom and practical relevance. Every word Jesus spoke fulfilled the Proverbs. They were apples of gold in a setting of silver every time our Lord opened his mouth. Jesus made the best use of the time. Remember what he said to his disciples? He refused to stop working because it was the day. Because it was the light. And he knew the darkness was coming. Think for a moment how gracious the speech of our Lord Jesus was. How seasoned with salt it was. Even when it was corrective. Because he is himself the very word of eternal life. Today you will be with me in paradise. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I will heal you. Be clean. Lazarus, come forth. His speech was always seasoned with salt, always thoughtful, revealing the things hidden from the foundation of the world. Jesus knew how to answer each person because Jesus knew what was in the heart of every person. So He knew exactly what to say and when to say it. His words are always the truest, always the most relevant, the most gracious, the most thoughtful, perfect words. Because He can see inside every single one of us down to the places we can't even see in ourselves. And yet He loves us and died for us anyway, beloved. In this beautiful Savior is grace for every moment. Set your mind on Christ. Set your minds on things above, not on things of this world. When you're tempted to despair because you've failed to obey these things, you cannot fathom how you can go about obeying them in the first place, look to Christ this morning. Look to Christ. He forgives us. He holds us. He restores us. 
And it is there in the grace of Christ for every moment, even for us, that we become consumed by the grace that needs to grip us for the sake of others. Beloved, Paul's ministry was completely dependent on prayer, and it was centered completely on the proclamation of Jesus. And we are just the same this morning. We're just the same. And the declaration of Christ that we're called to proclaim in the world is the most countercultural, costly message of all time, no matter where you put it. Paul encountered danger and persecution from within and outside the church, inside and outside the church, for his singular commitment to this message. Do we realize the value and the worth of what we have in the gospel? We need grace for every moment, beloved, to remain in all that we've been given and to proclaim the message we've been sent to make known. We aren't dependent on God for everything only after we've done our part, beloved. We need grace for every moment. And in Jesus Christ, we have it and we'll have it forever. Do you know him this morning? Not do you know about him. Do you know him? To the struggling believer, maybe crushed this morning by the weight of the text, his arms are open wide for you, for you now. He will never turn his back on you or leave you or forsake you, ever. And to the one who doesn't know Jesus in this saving way, in the way that trusts him to forgive us of our sins and to make us right with God, he will not turn you away. He will not turn you away. We're going to close with prayer and a song before we have the Lord's Supper together. After I pray, I'll be down in front waiting if any of you need to come and pray. I'll be there. There'll be others that will come and help if you need someone to help you pray. But let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this the time that you've given to us, Father, to open your word together. I thank you so much for it. God, I pray that the truth of Christ would consume us, every single one of us. Father, nobody should leave here this morning gloating because they feel right or more virtuous than others. Nobody should leave here this morning so undone by their own sin that they leave hopeless and cannot come to you, Lord. Your word heals us, Father. It heals us of our arrogance and it heals us of our brokenness. This is what Jesus does at the cross for us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would enable us in our hearts to come to him. And this I ask in his name. Amen.